This is Recorded Future, Inside Security Intelligence. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 212 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. This week, we welcome back to the show Lindsay Kay, Director of Operational Outcomes with Recorded Future's Insit Group. We'll discuss their recently published report titled Bad Code, Upstream Code Flaws Have Far-Reaching Consequences. The report highlights some of the often overlooked ways in which code can be compromised. Lindsay takes us through specific examples from the report and provides her expertise on how to best protect your organization's supply chain from them. Stay with us. So I started out as a software engineer. So I went to Olin College of Engineering, majored in computing with an engineering degree, and originally started working for a company as a software engineer doing C development, some multi-threaded C++, even iOS and Android development. But really what kind of piqued my interest is a lot of the cybersecurity stuff. So at that point, there was a project that was looking for somebody to take on as a reverse engineer. So I asked if I could join and somebody on the project actually mentored me in how to do reverse engineering, what it was, because as writing software, you kind of write the code and then you compile it and you're not really concerned about what happens next. And then Mm. moving into reverse engineering, it was going in kind of the opposite direction. So taking this binary and then trying to figure out what it does and effectively make it back into the code originally that it was. So that's how I got started in the reverse engineering space in general. And then I started moving into doing some malware analysis. And what I really enjoy about the malware analysis is that putting out things like ransomware and other pieces of malware is their job and their business. So they don't want it to be easy to take apart. So some of my favorite things to do are take apart the heavily obfuscated binaries and try and figure out what is going on when they try to make analysis harder is really what I enjoy the most. So I've given a couple different talks on custom crypto being really entertaining and some of the Gregor ransomware, for example, that was a fairly challenging piece and Maze was as well. So these are the types of things that I really enjoy doing. And right now in my current role as Director of Operational Outcomes, I have the opportunity to run INSIC's technical threat intelligence team. So in my day job, not only kind of setting team direction and research strategy, I have the opportunity to do a lot of this malware analysis and tackle the problems alongside my team. So it's been really fun to not only do kind of the custom research stuff that I have the opportunity of looking at this malware, but then also some of the customer requests that come in when there's an opportunity. So it's been really great to see such a diversity of malware and ransomware and just malicious stuff, um, looking at potentially malicious code. So it's been a very enjoyable experience. Can you give us some insights for those who aren't familiar with reverse engineering? As as you talked about going from a coder to a reverse engineer specialist, I mean, is is it a is it as simple as as being someone who can kind of solve puzzles? Are are you looking at things and trying to to figure out what what exactly is going on here? What what is the day to day reality like for 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 someone like you who's doing those sorts of things? Sure. So oftentimes, reverse engineering is about answering a couple different questions. So for example, if somebody says, hey, here's a malicious piece of code or a malicious binary that I have or application, what is it doing? So 
you perform the reverse engineering not, not just for kind of your own personal entertainment, which it's very entertaining, but really to try <laughs> and answer a couple key questions for whoever is asking you to do it. So what is it? Uh, what is it doing? So is it collecting my data? Is it a piece of ransomware? Is it exfiltrating this data? Uh, where does that data go to? And then is it related to something that I have seen before or is it related to something I know about or is this something I have no idea about? And then being able to answer those questions involves taking the binary and figuring out what kind of functionalities are baked into it. So at this point, once you start to kind of figure out these little pieces, so I am a huge fan of crossword puzzles. And I love Mm. to say that reverse engineering is just like the technical version of a crossword puzzle. So there's some things that you're very, very sure of. So you are able to say, okay, I definitely know that this is going on here. And then there's other pieces that, are you're a little bit less sure of. So picture penciling in very gently an answer in your crossword puzzle. <laughs> right, right, right. And you're going to come back right. to it later. So reverse engineering is just like that. So there are some things where it's like, I think this is, go- is what's going on. And then you're always challenge- challenging your own assumptions and really trying to figure out like, okay, what am I sure of now? And as you move through it, trying to figure out, oh, okay, now I know this was wrong or this was right or I was on a completely different track, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. No, it does. And, but I think really one of the things that highlights for me is that what, what we often think of as being a highly technical pursuit, and, and to be sure it is, but at the same time, you get to enjoy those little moments of discovery, those high, those, those aha moments when the pieces fall into place and you figured out the, the, the five letter word for malware, right? Absolutely. It's just like that. Well, let's go through a recent report that you and uh, the INSIG group published. Uh, This is titled, Bad Code, Upstream Code Flaws Have Far-Reaching Consequences. Before we dig in here, uh, what prompted the creation of this report? So, as I'm sure you're super familiar with, supply chain attacks really have been seemingly on the rise. And I think this really started in December 2020 with the big solar winds incident. And then we saw the Acelian FTA incident in February 2021 we're not the only ones. And we started seeing kind of these smaller attacks that are not quite supply chain attacks, but they definitely involve the idea of bad code, which prompted the title of the report. And Mm. really what we wanted to understand was, are there any sort of commonalities between the initial access vector or any of the tools used between them or kind of what, what can we tell people to look for and what can we kind of discern from all these different types of attacks? And what we started to notice, which was very interesting, is everybody knows about solar winds, and it was this big kind of custom piece of code that was added to the tool and there are all these kind of components to it. But really what we also saw was that there were instances where just, for example, one line of the CodeCov bash uploader script was changed and really trying to help the public understand that when you think of a supply chain attack, it's not always these really grandiose changes, but it can be these very little, very hard to notice to some degree changes, both to the open source code that you may be using. So with the PyPI repos, or it could be something where just a little bit of something is tweaked that allows somebody to do something malicious. So really kind of understanding the whole spectrum of what could constitute something that in reality is a supply chain attack, but may not be so obvious and so kind of blatant as the solar winds attack. 
Well, we don't have time to go through all four of the cases that you outlined here in the report, and, and I recommend that our listeners do take a look at it. But but let's go through at least one of them together. Do you want to pull one out as, as a representative example of, of what you all looked into here? So one of the examples that I really want to highlight was the modification to the CodeCov uh, bash uploader script. So as I mentioned before, we always consider, oh, supply chain attacks, these are going to be so grandiose. But this realistically was just a one-line modification. So according to open source research, it looked like access was potentially gained to CodeCov's Docker image uh, creation process through some unspecified means. And what it allowed the attackers to do was actually insert a line into the, the uploader script that caused the credentials of the customer to, or whoever is using the script, to then be exfiltrated to a malicious domain. And what I really hmm. want to highlight here is that this is one of those things where it's you might not even notice it, and it was specifically designed to be not so obvious. So if it fails, it will fail silently. If it runs, it runs in silent mode. So different things like that where it's a very kind of quiet modification, but obviously had very far-reaching consequences. And this is something where it's not only about kind of noticing that this malicious behavior is occurring from Godkov's side, but we would recommend that like at this point you should have some some baseline to your systems. So if you think about it, you have these credentials that you are using to, let's say, use some of your build tools or your build environment or other kind of continuous integration tools. And thinking about how we are also concerned about passwords and logins and everything else, but really kind of thinking about, okay, well, what would happen if these credentials got leaked? And I think this example really kind of shows the consequences of that and really kind of considering the idea of, do we have good baselines of what is expected behavior for some of these types of tools that are so intimately ingrained in either producing our code or in our products or that we depend upon? So this is one of those situations where I would say having some kind of monitoring based on this, uh, this build environment so that you're able to say, should my build environment really be contacting this specific IP that's located somewhere that I really don't think it should be? So having right. that understanding, <laughs> right, and also being able to sort of segment your network as much as possible. So does your build environment need to touch every system? Maybe it does to some degree, but then sort of what are those uh, mitigations that you're able to put in place there to start making sure that you have an understanding of what's going on? So this was just definitely one of those examples that I wanted to highlight because, again, it does emphasize the fact that such a small change that looks pretty innocuous to some degree really did have fairly far-reaching consequences. Yeah, I think it also points out that we've gotten so good at looking at the obvious things that I think in some ways these supply chain attacks point to the fact that the the bad actors have had to go at us at, by different means. And so to your point, if, you, if you're looking at behavioral things, why is my system calling out to a server on the other side of the world when it's never done that before? Which is different than looking for a specific thing, a specific chunk of code or something like that that has made its way into your system. It seems to me like that's a that's a, a sort of a different way we have to look at things. Am, am I am I on track there with that thinking? No, you certainly are. And I think really understanding kind of the inherent functionalities of our tools and really what are these libraries and open source projects and, you know, tools that we are depending on to really have critical functions in our business. 
So for the example in the report about the PyPI issue, where the inherent functionality of that tool looks for what is the highest version number, for example, of this library that's available, unless you kind of change how you work with that, that's a, a vulnerability that is going to, well, not really a vulnerability, but that is a feature that's going to exist in this tool until something is done to change it. So really kind of having that understanding of how do these tools work? What are they doing? And can I make any sort of safer behavioral modifications to my own behavior in addition to understanding whether or not the behavior of the tool's use is as expected that can help me more safely incorporate these types of libraries into my own code? Yeah, it, it strikes me too that a lot of this involves sort of questioning your own assumptions. Like there are things that 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 you would consider to be routine and benign. I guess every now and then it's good to check yourself to make sure that uh, that, that is indeed the case. Yes, and we certainly see that kind of idea of malicious behavior that really looks benign or takes advantage of benign tools with pre-ransomware type of behavior. So when people are maliciously using things like PowerShell, which is ingrained into the Windows operating system and is often Mm. used for good, or the background intelligence transfer service, things like that, that it's either part of the Windows operating system or it's a known tool that is often also used by system administrators to do normal system administrator stuff, really getting that fine line of, okay, is this actually expected use of this versus is this malicious use? And really trying to figure out when you can start detecting that difference is the incredibly hard part. So really, is it anomalous? Is it malicious? Is it benign? That's a very difficult problem to start kind of tackling, especially if you have a large organization or many systems or a very diverse set of users that you're trying to understand what normal is and what normal behavior looks like. Yeah. Well, the report lists a, a series of mitigations. Can, can we go through those together? What sort of things are, are you and your colleagues recommending here? Sure. So first, the idea of defense in depth. So if you think about it, there are several different kind of ways that, for example, in the code cop situation, that this potentially could have been caught. So however the initial access was gained by the threat actors, that could have been an opportunity. So you can't just focus on the idea of, If I guard my systems, I will, from the kind of external perimeter, I will be totally fine. So if they escape through that, what are the other opportunities for detection? So as we mentioned, looking and making sure you have an adequate baseline of your system, are you monitoring where it's accessed to? And then another aspect would be segmenting the system to make sure it only has the permissions and accesses that it really needs. So that's what I mean by defense in depth. So... Hmm there really wasn't any sort of common way that threat actors either accessed all of the systems that we cover in the report or really a lot of commonality there. So that's why I say defense in depth. So look at all the potential opportunities for where place, where things could go wrong and where you could detect that something is wrong at that point. Another thing I wanted to highlight is that even if you cannot catch the initial access, one of the things that we saw was that the earlier things were caught, the fewer or the less terrible things that were able to happen. So even a difference in you know one day could affect whether it's going to be hundreds of your customers or even thousands of your upstream users that will execute this malicious code. So even if you can't catch it at the initial access, what are the other opportunities that you can make whatever ends up happening less terrible than it could be? Hmm. So further, 
in the report, we talked a little bit about if there's any sort of official hashes that companies are putting out. For example, like here are the known good hashes of our tool. These are the ones that we published. Really trying to check against the hashes that you have versus those. While this is not entirely foolproof because, you know, as we've seen in some attacks, software may be unknowingly modified on the, the vendor side. This is something where it's just kind of another precaution that you can take. So again, the defense in depth, but it's a slightly different aspect of it. Mm, coming at it from a different direction. Right. So if you have your own sort of code library that you put out, so figure out what are the different things that you can monitor and analyze in your own your own code. So doing things like analyzing any sort of your code coverage, looking for if it's an open source project or anything, or it can be committed to by people that you may not know or trust. This is something where making sure that the commits that do come in are what you expect. So for example, when the official PHP Git server, which we cover in the report, was accessed and somebody made small malicious commits, they were actually picked up and noticed by people who are doing code review. So really the importance of this code review and really taking it very seriously. So I know that we all probably get very tired of, yes, here's just another code review. Here is, (laughs) yes, I expect this to be perfectly fine, but really looking for some of these changes and questioning something if you see it. So don't just say, oh, I'm sure they just misspelled it or I'm sure something was just a little off here. This is something that if you're looking at what is coming into your product and you're seeing something that doesn't make sense, this is another opportunity to say, hey, wait a minute, always worth looking. Part of it comes down to just constant vigilance that you can't you can't be lulled into a false sense of security through a routine or fatigue or anything like that. Yeah, I think the days where we can just trust everything that kind of comes in or is on the internet, I don't think there were any days really that we could. But a lot of that, I think, has been ripped away from us, especially seeing all these different types of attacks that are not quite supply chain, but really are focused on that bad code. And I think it's something where taking stock of what are we using from the internet that other people could do something malicious to? What are the other things that we incorporate into our product that is necessary for us to function? And really taking a look at that and saying, okay, well, what if somebody were to potentially do something malicious to this? What might they do and how would we look for it? And I would be remiss if I didn't ask uh, what part the threat intelligence could play in an organization's proper defenses. So when we looked in the Recorded Future platform, it was you can definitely see some of these commits exist. So having some sort of monitoring set up, if you use a threat intelligence platform, so are there commits that are being made that have to any libraries that you use, um, either in a public repo that seems to mirror the name that you can kind of get ahead of. So again, that's the idea of sort of the third-party risk. So what are the tools that you use? And then what is going on in the the cybersecurity world that could affect them? So this is not just limited to things like code additions. It's, as I'm sure we talk so much about, is vulnerabilities. So for example, vulnerabilities in some of your third-party tools. So really taking that threat intelligence layer and then applying it not only to the more kind of classic use cases, but then also thinking about it in terms of these supply chain type use cases. So I think threat intelligence really is helpful because you're not just getting alert, 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 all these changes have been made, but what is really the important stuff to look at? Our thanks to Lindsay Kay from Recorded Futures Insect Group for joining us. 
The report is titled Bad Code, Upstream Code Flaws Have Far-Reaching Consequences. You can find it on the Recorded Future website. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Caitlin Mattingly. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.